You know, during the time that uh, Brian Pierce is gone, Brian Pierce and the family are gone on sabbatical, uh, we're having an opportunity to hear from many different voices. And there's one theme that we've been looking at this summer, we're looking at all summer, and it's, it's just the idea of one thing. Uh, what's the one thing that God has laid on your heart that's kind of a life theme? And some people have many themes, that's okay, but we're asking them to select one thing that God's been teaching them. And it's a joy for me this morning to have to introduce to you a dear friend of many years, Joe Novenson and his wife Barbara here. Joe is the pastor of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. Uh, he's been there now f- for 21 years by the grace of God. And uh, they're up in Chattanooga. I got to know Joe. The earliest, first time I got to know Joe was in the early 80s when uh, he came and spoke at a church uh, gathering that I was a part of. And it's been a joy for me over the years to know him. He's a person I look to for encouragement, for uh, a word of encouragement and strength. And I remember talking with another pastor friend of mine who, um, I'm not going to tell you where he was or what he was, but he was around two hours away from Chattanooga. And he said, you know, when I went to that church, I really didn't know what I was doing. And I was looking for someone I could talk to. And I called up Joe Novenson and asked him if I could drive up and meet with him once a month. And he said, Joe graciously invited me to come up, and every month I would go up there and meet with Joe for for a number of hours, and and he would share his life, and we'd share our lives together. And that is the kind of person Joe is, opening himself up to be an encourager, to be the one who strengthens others uh, in the gospel of God. And it's so good for us here to have him, as well as Barb, together to strengthen us in God's word this morning. Joe, it's wonderful to have you here, brother. It really is kind of you to let me come. I, uh, I thank you for the welcome. This is a remarkable gathering, and you have such a remarkable place to be. I do want to speak to you about one thing, and I'm going to read just one verse to talk to you about one thing. But even before I read the verse and then pray, I want to put the verse in history, because it seems to me often when you hear something out of the Bible, especially if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the verse just kind of hangs in midair. Who said it and when? The one line that you're about to hear, it was written when Peking was new construction as a city. This verse was written 150 years before the Indian, India, Indian caste system even existed. It was written 200 years before Rome, not this one, but the other one, existed. 200 years before the first Olympics. Three centuries before Buddha or Confucius were even born. Four centuries before Aristotle, Socrates, or Plato. And 1,500 years before Mohammed was on the earth. And a man named Solomon wrote this line. Could you put it up? Proverbs 11.30. 
the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And whoever captures souls is wise. As I pray, would you think, who do you think you are? If you're a follower of Jesus, who do you really think you are? That's the one thing I want to speak to you about. You must not forget who you really are. Let's pray. Father, in minutes we would ask that you would do much. When I think about what you've said about your word, that it will never pass away. It is possible that five billion years from now, we could remember what you did today. It's possible. We would ask that we would, that it would be written on our hearts. Then in your inimitable way, you would help the one who preaches and help all of us to see Jesus, to know who we are in light of who he is. Would you come help? We're asking in Christ's name. Amen. One of the great honors of my life, that's not hyperbole or exaggeration, one of the great honors of my life was being a pastor in a church in South Carolina and actually being able to shepherd the man who took Billy Graham to the crusade where he became a Christian. His name was Albert McMakin. I was teaching the introduction class in our church, and this older gentleman came in and sat down. We were all saying things about ourselves to get to know one another, and he introduced himself by saying, I'm the man that took Billy Graham to the crusade where he became a Christian, and then I discipled him. And inside, I'm thinking, no, you're not. No way. And I went and found his daughter and his granddaughter, and I asked them. I said, yeah. He talked to Billy when he was 15 years of age and said, Billy, if I let you drive my truck, would you come with me to the Mordecai Ham crusade? And Billy went, sure. And he took him. And that day, the man who has spoken to more humans, over two billion in person, than anybody in the history of the world about Jesus, became a Christian. I think you can understand how much it meant to me to even know this man. I had tons of questions, and he would answer, and he knew things about Jesus that I could only read books about, and he lived them, and it was an absolute delight to simply be a part of Albert McMakin's life. And then something started to happen as he got old. I visited him when he was in a nursing facility, and I remember the day he forgot who I was. And it hurt. But I could still ask him questions, and then I can remember when he forgot who his family was. And the worst day, this will sound selfish, but I'm just being as open as I can be. The worst day was when he forgot who he was. Because you see, then Albert was in the room, but he was gone. He didn't remember who he was. He didn't remember how God had used him. 
And I could sit there with him and pray and sing and read. But I couldn't anymore benefit from Albert McMakin. It didn't just hurt me, it hurt our church. Honestly, it hurt the city. I was with Albert when he got a telegram. Any of you remember what those were? From Billy Graham from Hong Kong on his 81st birthday. And he said, preacher, you may want to read this. And it said, Albert, you taught me more than all the books, all the classes, and all the seminaries I ever attended. I went, Mr. McMakin, this is a historic church document. And now he was gone. Though he was still in the room. Here's why I begin there. What if you forget who you are? The damage that can bring to Rome, Georgia, is titanic. The damage that can bring to your neighborhood, to your family, to your friends. If you're a follower of Jesus already, if you're not, this is about the way we need to be at your service. If you forget, Christian, who you are, I'd like to suggest the passage that you just saw indicates that you, in a way, have the potential of greater impact than Billy Graham. That's not exaggeration. When we unpack it, you'll see it. That's who you are. But what if you've forgotten? I want to show you three things. That verse says you have a stunning identity. That verse says that identity has a stunning cause. And that verse says it'll produce stunning behavior. So I want to show it to you. Would you put the verse up one more time? The fruit of the righteous, look at that end of that first line, is a tree of life. Now listen, for Solomon to pick that, as the illustration of whoever these people are that are righteous, whoever this being is that is righteous is a tree of life. For somebody alive during the Old Testament, that's like over the top. He's playing with words. He says the fruit is the tree. And the fruit, therefore, isn't an apple or a date or a plum. It's not equal to a bushel. It's not a cartload. It's not a harvest. It's not multiple harvests, it's a tree. And it's not just a tree, it's the tree. It's the tree that basically ends all trees. It's the tree in downtown Eden. The tree that if eaten, if anyone would ingest this, before sin hit the world, according to Moses' writing, all the perfections of Eden would have been theirs forever. Just think about joy that would be free and utterly deep. Think about love with no stain of selfishness at all. Think about peace that literally would pass your human understanding because it was simply so melt-in-the-mouth sweet. Think about honor. Think about sacrifice. Think about nobility. Think about beauty unstained at all. Solomon just said, that's what this being is who's righteous. 
should be compared to, or if you're an English major, to which you should compare them. That's just stunning. With all due respect to all of you listening, my guess is that you think you're understanding what I'm saying, but I'd like to suggest none of us do, myself included. For when the Bible begins to describe what would happen when the good and the restoration of the new heaven and the new earth that was present in Eden is brought back, it always goes over the top into poetry. Because it's not comprehensible to us, because everything we know is broken. And so it uses phrases like Isaiah 55, 12, that mountains will break into song and trees will clap. I don't think that it means that literally, but what it does mean is that what is animated will be reanimated. And that however beautiful a vista may be at the Grand Canyon or the Rockies or wherever, it will be so much better that it's likely for you to compare it to it breaking into song and clapping. So is Solomon saying, That if someone can get near to this being that is righteous, they ought to hear gently in the background trees clapping and song coming from somewhere. That somehow this being would bring the most vital, robust, vibrant, refreshing, renewing, restorative resource relationship that anyone has ever seen. But it gets more stunning. Because if you look at what the Bible says about the tree of life after sin hit the world, which we read from Genesis, listen to what it says. So the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, chapter 3, verse 24. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, that's Hebrew plural for a kind of angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now listen, some scholars think that it's one gigantic sword that takes multiple angels to hold. Others think that it's multiple angels, all with flaming swords. Whichever it is, what Solomon just said is this. After sin hit the world, If anybody's going to get near this tree of life, they're going to have to go through angel war. They're going to have to go toe-to-toe with Michael and Gabriel with drawn flaming swords. Or put more simply, God is saying, I forbid, I forbid anyone on this planet to get near this kind of life except in one place whoever the righteous are. I'm from Philadelphia. That makes me want to go, holy cavoli. Before anyone on this planet could get there, God would stop them with drawn swords unless they could meet one of these righteous beings. Now, this takes it even further. In a moment, I'm going to show you that if you're a Christian, that's you. And it makes me think of that great quote that Peter Jackson edited slightly in The Lord of the Rings. 
when Gandalf says about the two hobbits on their way to Mordor, all our hopes now lie with two little hobbits somewhere in the wilderness. All of Rome's hopes lie with a group of hobbits somewhere in a theater. I'm not exaggerating. According to what I'm about to tell you, right now you are more valuable to this city than Denise Darvell and Christian Barnard were on December 3rd, 1967. Christian Barnard was the first physician to take a heart that Denise was willing to donate when she died out of her chest and put it inside Louis Washkansky. First time it had ever been done. According to this verse, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're more valuable to this town than that. But it gets even more stunning. If you go to the end of the Bible, which we read before from Revelation, listen again, Revelation 22, 2-3. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now, some scholars say this is like a redwood, just spread across. And others say, no, it's now an orchard. But it's this singular. It says, the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. I grant you, Solomon couldn't see the book of Revelation, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Solomon moved him to write this verse. He could. And so is Solomon writing and God implying that if somebody can just get near the leaves of your life, all they have to do is have a little conversation with you. A few minutes. And listen, listen. The curse will reverse. If they get near you, holy cavoli. This is stunning. We would be the people who bring life, not death. We would be a deposit, not a withdrawal. No longer would we look at people as vehicle or obstacle to our goal. We would look at them as oracles teaching us about God because they're image bearers of God. So no longer is any person possibly seen by us as vehicle or obstacle to our silly agenda. No matter how broken, no matter how needy, they are image bearers. We are to bring them life. Now, this verse just said that when they get to them, there would be no more curse. Remember what Moses taught about the curse. He said in the day that people sinned, they would die. And he didn't just mean physically die. Everything dies. Relationships die. In every direction. It brings death reputationally, relationally, socially, um, academically, behaviorally. It goes in every direction. Death goes out. But these people who are tree of life are able to bring life. Now, I want to give you an illustration before I go and show you how this identity becomes ours. Righteous. Here's an example. 
One of my heroes is now in glory. She died at 82, I believe. Her name was Marion Smart. Marion was one of the most remarkable women of God I've ever known. She was dying of a disease called polymyositis, which caused all the tissue in her body to begin to basically become inflexible. And she couldn't move. She spent her time in a hospital bed. But she knew Jesus better than virtually anybody I had known at the time. I told my dear bride, who's sitting right here, I said, if you die, I'm going to marry Marion Smart. I just want you to know. Because she had such an impact on me. One day, a, a fellow came into my office, and he was suicidal. He told me, I'm, I'm, I'm planning on it. I was engaged. The woman I was engaged to just broke off with me. I have no reason to live. And I'm getting out everything I was taught in seminary, and nothing was working. And I finally, purely, I think, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, I said, look, get in my car. He said, where are we going? I said, I want to introduce you to a woman. He said, I don't need another woman. I said, you need this woman. And I drove him straight to the nursing home. We walked into Marion's room, and I said to her, Marion, this guy's hurting so bad, and I can't be any help to him. I want you to teach him everything you know about Jesus. And then I said to him, I said, look, your Friday and Saturday nights are now free. I want you to date Marion. Now, Marion loves cheeseburgers from Armando's. Make sure you bring them, and Marion, you just pour your life into him. And they started. This is not a lie. I went by weeks later and came up to the room, you know, just kind of walking. And I looked in and was like, there in the room were 90-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 80-year-olds, all with a Bible in their hand. I could watch the nurses coming by and going, what is going on in there? Do you know what was going on in there? Life. She'd brought him life. He eventually fell in love with another girl and wanted to marry, and they set up the wedding, and he wanted Marion in her wheelchair to be in the wedding party. She just couldn't get out of the bed to do it. But it doesn't have anything to do with your age. It has to do with being righteous. And that brings me to the second point. All right, that's the stunning identity. What's the... Stunning cause. The fruit of the righteous. Now let's, let's make sure we define this as Solomon would have. Let's not read the Apostle Paul back into it. What would Solomon have meant when he wrote that word? First of all, I can tell you that we can know very specifically because if you didn't know this, this will be a helpful fact. Deuteronomy 17.18 says, The living God told every king of Israel they had to write the first five books of this Bible by hand and keep it with them every day to be read. Every king. So Solomon would have written the first five books of this book by hand. So he would have known the verse I'm about to read you. It's Deuteronomy 6.24. Listen. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees so that we might always be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we're careful to obey... All the law before the Lord our God, as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. There it is. Now let's break it down so we can, if we are careful, it says. So nobody, sort of, kind of, now and then does this. You don't do this by mistake. 
if we are careful to obey, not study, not read, not discuss, not like, not sing about, not write, not present papers on, obey. All the law, not some of it. Now listen, you may not realize it, but inside these, just the first five books, there's social law, military law, sexual law, economic law, medical law, familial law, ecological law, marital, penal, parental law, architectural, horticultural, agricultural, political, hygienic, city planning, spiritual, educational law, geriatric law, judicial law, contractual law, restitutional law, dietary law, diplomatic law. I'm just warming up. That's crushing. All the law. And notice this, before the Lord our God, not before one another, kind of like this, you know, well, I kept it better than she did or he did. Oh, it ain't before each other. It's before him. As the Lord commanded us. In other words, he doesn't just want you to go, okay, kept it, check. He wants it to be heart deep. That's even more crushing. And then I want you to know something else Solomon wrote. Listen to these words that he wrote, Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's no one righteous. What? There's no one righteous who does only good on the earth. I think one of the reasons he wrote that is because his daddy, David, wrote Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 in which he says this, God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands, any who seek God. Everyone's turned aside. They together have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one who is righteous. Well, then, Joe, what are you doing? Is this just one gigantic, exaggerated, poetic statement? No, no, no. Stay with me. But I want to push it even further. What this is saying is that at our best, we're never pure. Here's an example. Have any of you ever been to Kirkland's gift shop out by the Hamilton Place Mall? It used to be in the mall. I'm very thankful they moved it out because if you got near it, the potpourri is so intense, you get a headache like the moment you come through the door. And this, this has actually happened. I'm in Kirkland's surviving the headache, and I go over to the wall, and there's these little things for sale. They're, they're, they're kind of molded turtles and, and little fairies, and, and there's bunnies. And I pick them up, and they're called poupettes. And I go, no. Turn them over. Yeah. From cow and horse manure. 357. $3.50. I pictured some guys in Iowa going, hey, Mort, I got an idea. <laughs> I bet you. I bet you. We put this stuff in a mold and put it in a plastic bag. Folks back east, they'll buy this stuff. I bet you anything. <laughs> I, I went up to the lady at the register and I went, you are kidding me. And she went, no, no, no. You put them in your garden and the rain falls and they... Lady, these are made out of cow manure. And she said, I know, I know. Anyway, here's what I'm telling you that. My best sermon before God, look like a Bible, yep, is a poupette. That's what Solomon and David are saying. It's what Isaiah meant when he said, all our righteous deeds 
are filthy rags. Elect creates a problem except for this. Not only, not only would Solomon have written Deuteronomy 6, he also would have written Genesis 15.3 that says this, Abram believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Abram trusted. He didn't do anything. He trusted God. And he had no cash. It was credited. It was credited to him as righteousness. So his line of credit was now righteousness before God. To try and make this clear, let me leave economics. Can you look up here if you've been asleep? In 1975, I crushed both my hands in a sheet metal accident. Barb and I were two months married. 17 surgeries to rebuild my hands. They had to cut off my thumb, but they told me, we'll give you a new thumb. And what we'll do to build you a new thumb is we're going to attach you to your chest for six weeks. So they cut a big U in my chest, pulled up the skin, turned it into a cone, and sewed my hand to it. Then after six weeks, they cut it off. That's it. It's a little shorter. This is my chest skin. They took the bone from the side of my, uh, from my iliac crest, put it in here, and they took the nerve from my middle finger, cut a pathway through my palm, and moved the, that section of the side of my finger over here, still attached to the nerve that went there. Now it goes here. So look, when I touch here, I feel it over here. But this is what you learn from Genesis 15. Abram believed. He didn't have the cash, but it was credited him as righteousness. In essence, this is what Paul means when he says you are in Christ. My thumb was dead from gangrene and they put it in my chest. It became healthy, not because of the thumb, but because of my chest. It is now alive. What you're learning from this one verse is that when someone actually banks their life upon the worsen and work of Christ, they become alive. They're credited righteousness. That is absolutely stunning. Now, let me tell you why this is so incredible. Christianity, unlike, I'm going to make a bold statement, unlike any other religion, I mean no offense if you are a follower of another, I'm not trying to be offensive. I respect the Dalai Lama. I just can't be like him. They're elitist. You don't have to be brilliant to be a tree of life. You don't have to be as good a theologian as your pastor. You don't have to be as remarkable as Mother Teresa. You have to trust in Christ. He could use anyone to change this whole city who really begins to understand who they are and banks their life on Christ and lives like it. It's utterly not elite. So stop saying, I'm not smart enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not young enough. No, there's no enough. Christ is enough and you trust in him. The enough's not in you. It's in him. This is stunning. 
only got a few minutes, so let me move quickly. Let me just illustrate, if any of you does this and really begins to believe this, it would be like this. I have a friend, her name is Manda Rogers. She's a, a decorated, I think she's now a captain in the United States Marines, maybe moving toward retirement. She's the only Marine I can hug and kiss on the cheek. Don't, don't do that often. She was in a firefight in Afghanistan. And one of her men went down in between her and the enemy. They were with other allied forces from Australia at this time. And if you're a Marine, you know, especially on Memorial Day, no one is left behind. When a man went down, one of her men, without even being commanded by Manda, bolted from behind cover, ran out, picked up his man, his fellow soldier, in the fire, and everybody began to cover, and ran back and laid him down. The Aussie soldier said, what are you blankety-blank doing? But it gets even more incredible. There was a wounded Afghan. And again, if you're a Marine, you know this. He ran into the enemy fire and scooped up the wounded enemy and brought him back. And the Aussie went off and just said, you're crazy. And listen to what Manda said. This is a Marine. This is what we do. That is who you are, believer. This is what we do. We risk for everyone else, even if we go down. That brings me to the third. Stunning identity, stunning cause, trust in Christ. Now, stunning behavior. And whoever captures souls is wise. Some translations say whoever wins souls. Either would be correct, but I really like that the ESV uses the word capture because this, most when you speak with followers of Jesus, they, they use this phrase for evangelism, winning souls. Now listen, this verse is not less than that, but it's a lot more than that. Because Solomon uses a military word. That's why capture is such a great translation. It's a word that describes more of what a Navy SEAL or what a Marine would do. When you, when you look at the word, if you see it used elsewhere, it's loche, it's in, in 1 Samuel 24, 1 Kings 19, Psalm 31, Proverbs 119, Ezekiel 33, always military context. So what is he saying? Please note a couple things. This person who is righteous by faith in Christ becomes a life giver because they are willing to capture, notice plural, souls, not just one. They are willing to go to war for what's inside of other people deeper than their DNA. All the way down to what makes them human. I will go to war for that. And I want to warn you, if you do this, you're going to take friendly fire because many Christians, you'll make them nervous. If you become the kind of person that will hang out with people that others stay away from and you love them, serve them, sacrifice, give, tell, there will be other Christians that will go, you're a little bit too much. 
But that's why you're in Rome. Here's multiple examples, but I have to close. So I want to give you a story. It's one of my favorite stories. This comes from a book. You can get it on Amazon called Small Miracles. It was compiled. It's a New York Times bestseller, and now it has several added editions by Yida Habersham, uh, Bernie Siegel, and Judith Leventhal. They're all children of Holocaust survivors. And one of their stories is in the first edition, Small Miracles, and here it is. It's the story of a man about my age who's been a shift worker, works at night and during the day, depending upon when he's assigned, and he always walked home the same way through a city park, and when it was winter and it was cold and the sun was set early, he walked home in the complete dark, carrying his little lunch pail and did this day in, day out, same routine, until he aged and simply got beyond the age of being a healthy person. And one day he was walking, and he heard in the complete dark of sunset in the winter the sound in the bush of what was obviously a woman being molested. He could hear her screaming, moaning. And this all took place in seconds. He described, I stopped and I realized I've got to get the police. Then he thought, if I run to get the police, she could be raped or dead by the time they're here. I don't have time. I've got to stop it myself. And scared to death, he parted the bushes in the dark, saw the bodies, and jumped on top of the man who was on top of the woman. Well, the guy panicked, the rapist, threw off the worker and ran into the darkness. Now, for the woman, all she thought is that there were two assailants. So she starts screaming, get away from me, get away from me, and backing against the tree. And he starts saying, lady, 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 I didn't come to harm you. I came to help you. He's gone. You're okay. You're all right. You're okay. And he heard these words come out of her mouth. This is true. He heard these words. Daddy? Is that you? He just rescued his own daughter from being raped. Here's why I'm telling you that. What will it take to get you to jump into the bush? I make you a promise. If you begin to understand your stunning identity and realize it's entirely because of the work of Christ, you may actually bank on it and start to do behavior that makes you jump bush or bush jump. Right in downtown Rome, right in your family. And I promise you, you may hear these words. Father, is this you? And you'll be able to say, you bet it is. This is the work of the living God. I'm just one of his. I'm glad you know it's him. Remember who you are. Let's pray. Lord, Solomon's words are breathtaking. This picture really has little peer. I thank you for the men and women in this room, the children, the people you've changed. Your remarkable love for people like us that gives your righteousness 
and plants a tree in the middle of this city, the likes of which Rome can't even imagine, has actually begun. Reverse the curse. Bring life. Stop death. Let just the leaves of casual conversation be transforming. You are remarkable, Christ, by what you give. We sing to you about it and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.